When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello and welcome to another episode of Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. And it's uh, it's been over a year now, so we're 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 sticking with the alliterative name, uh, no matter how much uh, I, I complain. Um, but I've gotten some feedback. Folks say they like it, so. Uh, in any event, it's one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and I have a fantastic episode today. I have been very excited to talk to this creator. I'm uh, familiar with uh, their comics criticism work, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that. Um, but uh, they are a, a, a journalist, a, uh, an editor, a, a creator of their own, and they're here to talk about their new comic, which is called The Magic Necklace. The Zoop campaign starts... Uh, St. Valentine's Day, February 14th, and runs for about a month. We're going to talk all about it. Please welcome to the Cryptic Creator Corner, Claire Napier. Claire, how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing quite well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, so I um, I mean, I think I first became familiar with you in terms of you know, Twitter, because that's like the one social media I use for, mm-hmm. for comic books uh, and uh, finding out about new things and following folks who are writing interesting stuff. And um, I was very excited to talk to you when I heard you um, had this comic book coming out with the magic necklace, which I was able to read. Actually, I I mentioned to you before we started recording, I read it twice today. I read it once. Um, You mentioned some individuals like the the first page, like an after. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I was curious if they were influences and I kind of looked up some of them and I, I want to ask you about them. And then I, I read it a second time with kind of that information in my, in my head. Um, yeah, uh, very so, smug about that. Very, very happy that you read it twice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, well, one of the things I, I thought, you know, I, I tried to do a little bit of research, so I'm not going in, you know, totally blind to an interview. Very professional. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I try despite, you know, uh, bumbling my way through most of these. Um, I do try to have like some some at least some areas to to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I know I think it's either on I don't know if it's your website or on your Twitter bio. You say you've been in comics criticism since uh, or comics critic since 2012, comics editor since 2017, and a horror romance cartoonist since birth, which mm-hmm. uh, I love. <laughs> um, so before we talk about uh, the magic necklace, just tell me a little bit about that, like horror romance comic uh, or, or cartoonist since birth. What do you mean by that? Um, well, which one would you like me to go with first? Because there were kind of two questions there and I two paths diverged before me. Which <laughs> which one should I go <laughs> along? Well, talk to me about the horror. I mean, is that one thing? Horror romance, not horror yeah. slash romance? Yeah. Um, for me, that is the, um, it feels like the most both communicative and responsible uh, term for the kinds of stories that I like to tell. Um, I have almost as long as I've been a cartoonist. (laughs) I've been a a romance reader. Um, 
because Mills and Boone, which I think you know is Harlequin in the US, um, they are romance novels. Um, and they're not very long. They're about centimeter, centimeter and a half thick. Um, they're always available in charity shops. And um, they don't take long to read at all. Um, so whenever I was on holiday um, as a child, if I was a little bit bored, um, you can just you can always find them. If they're if you're in a, a holiday home, there's usually one or two on the shelf of books that there usually is in the kind of rambly sort of cottage that that we might stay in. Um, if you're camping, which we often were, there are often a few on a shelf in a like a the you know the rec room that they have at campsites. Um, if if you're in town on your own at, at the weekend, as I often was from age 11 onwards. Um, if you're a little bit bored, you can just stop in a charity shop. Again, you can find them always. They never cost very much. To this day, you can get them for 50 pence, 20 pence. And like people barely use those numbers anymore. <laughs> but it's just, it's traditional. <laughs> like People expect it. Um, so yeah, because I was always a fast reader and always needed something to read, um, which I know in reflection was an ADHD thing, but as a child, I just knew that I was bored if I wasn't reading. I needed something to do. I needed something to fit in. Like if when you're on holiday, um, you're always waiting for your family to get to the car or get to the beach or so on. So if you have a book, you can just read some and it's like the time just flies by. It doesn't exist. So I was always reading romance novels. Um, and obviously they're appealing uh, or I wouldn't read them. Um, but also they're sometimes quite threatening um, because when I was reading as a child, as a young person, and even still now, like the, um, I, I tend to read secondhand. Um, so the majority of the material that I was reading was published in the 80s or 90s um, and often first published perhaps before that. Um, and I don't know if this is still true, but at that time they did not um, use content warnings. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, what people romanticize is not always what's safe to actually happen in real life. Oh, um, yeah. And so many of the romance novels that I have read have just given me <laughs> like a full body nervous system response because the men in them are so appalling and the things they do are awful. And I hate the way that they treat the heroine. They make me feel anxious and unhappy and bad. Um, and that's not something that you can really parse very well as a child, reading that kind of bad experience. Like it's just, it's a book, you read it and recognizing how it makes you feel isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, so because I like to um, investigate, I suppose, that same kind of like tension between good and bad behavior, appealing and dangerous happen happenings, um, like, or just the idea of using um, horror motifs for um, metaphor. Um, for me, it feels, as I said, both most communicative and most responsible mm -hmm. because like it did upset me to read that these bad things that I didn't like were categorized as romance were characterized as romance. Like it felt not, it felt like a bad lesson. It, it felt like something that I really was learning. Like I should expect people to act that way. I should allow for it. And I didn't want to. So instead of using like 
specific content warnings or um i suppose as we called them when i was slightly more coming up trigger warnings right. um i just i prefer to characterize the genre as a whole that i'm working in as horror romance so that it allows like it when you when you pick up a horror story and something bad happens you're not like i can't believe this happened you know it was going to happen even if you don't know specifically what's going to happen because it's a horror story right that expectation so, is built into the exactly. genre so I figure if I call it horror romance, because the majority of the things that I feel most creatively inclined to produce do include both elements. Mm-hmm. And it just I just feel like, you know, it's on the tin. I've said it. <laughs> I've just tweeted it out as the meme went. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it just, it feels easiest. It feels like the shortest way to get to a goal of like an understanding audience. And, and I mean, all of that that you've said kind of feeds directly into what, you know, you've made with uh, the magic necklace. Um, <laughs> hearing you say that, though, I think about how um, I, I can't remember which movie it was, but someone was talking about a might have been the How Did This Get Made podcast where they had watched like a romantic comedy mm-hmm. or supposedly like a romantic comedy yeah. lifetime movie. And I, I remember one of them, maybe it was Paul Shear or somebody, if you're familiar with that podcast, said, there's a cut of this that is a horror film. Right. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of especially films, and I'd, I'd go back even a little further, the 70s, 80s, into the, the early 90s that passed for, you know, uh, romantic comedies or, or romance I dramas. It's a deep, deep vein. You're, no, you're probably, you're, you're right. You are right. Um, that that really you could re you could re-edit those films to truly be uh, uh to truly be horror movies. Um and so all of that, you know, going into the magic necklace. So why don't can you tell the the listeners a little bit about what the magic necklace is about? Um I find this really hard because um because I know everything that it's about. And everything that I want it to be about and everything that I want to be perceived. But I mm-hmm. don't know how much of it, um, if I say it, is, um, you know, going against the David Lynch principle. Um, right. Don't don't talk about what the movie's about. I made the movie. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing David Lynch, but exactly. essentially Elaborate that's it. on that, no. Um, <laughs> would you do it for me? Would you oh, do oh. that? Um, yeah, I I will. I will I will do my my best to kind of not not to give things away or get too deep into it, but um in, in uh, what I would say the magic necklace for me is about is about uh so Anne Rita um and uh it's so hard to do. You you you're <laughs> right. I can't imagine approaching this and be like, "How would you pitch this story?" and it's like, so Anne Rita uh, I mean, I, I can go by the 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 blurb that's in the front. You know, Anne Rita mm, got true. a a magic ne- got a magic necklace, uh, which I think was Morgan Le Fay's necklace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of gave her, let's say, a, a magic power. Um, the main thing I think with with Anne Rita is that I tried to figure out. And look at it from a narrative perspective. Like, what does this character like want? What is yeah. what are what what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And it seemed that 
because at first I thought the story was going into like a totally different direction. I thought it was going to end up being almost like a a revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what it is. Um, <laughs> because Anne Rita seems to want things that maybe somebody else reading it um, with more, I don't know if I want to use the word con- conservative or traditional values. Mm-hmm. That's probably wrong. But one of the things that when you think of like, the typical heroine in a romantic story she shouldn't want. Right, yeah. Um, and it, she's very a complicated kind of character. The her 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 brother, uh Jimmy is involved, the police are involved, and she kind of takes control of the situation in a way that I did not expect. Um there are there are parts of it that are graphic. Um, there are parts that are very funny, um, (laughs) and and it's all rendered in this black and, and pink. Um, there's like, uh, this like heart motif as well. I I know I'm doing a bad job of trying to sell people on this, but I really think I really, I want people to read it. I want people to come and talk to me about it because it's one of those <laughs> things. Look, I, I've read a, I read a ton of comics, right? Since I got back into reading comics yeah, 12 or 15 years ago at, at, at this point. I've read superhero stories. I've read Image. I've read indie stuff, Kickstarter stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated by the stuff that I read at once. And I'm like, I don't know exactly what, not that what this is about or what this is trying to tell me or what it wants to tell me. And I want to dig in more. I mean, I can read a green lantern story and how does this, and he does that and he screws everything up and then he saves the day and whatever, whatever. And that's it. And it's a fun story. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little deeper, but it's a complicated story like this about what Ann Rita is going after, what it is she's trying to accomplish, framing it from her perspective and not so much from the, the the men in her life. Um, there's a version of this story I think that is very centered on Anne Rita as like a, a victim might be the wrong word, but as somebody that all these things are happening to her, this isn't that story either. Um, it was very fascinating to me reading it. And like I said, then I checked out, we're going to talk about some of the, in the, the after on the first page, uh-huh. some of the influences. And I thought about some of those and then went back and read it again. And um, there's just so much there. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's a very simple premise. Like when you hear like, oh, Anne Rita got this magic necklace and then, mm-hmm. you know, this happened and then this happened. And then you'd start to dig in. You're like, this is nothing what I thought it was going to be. So sorry <laughs> for my rambling listeners, but you're going to have to read it and come back. And we're going to have a book club, I think, is what's going to happen <laughs> oh, at the end yeah, of this podcast. Please. Because I don't know if I did a good or a bad job, but I, I really... I really in, in, enjoy, again, I'm, I keep saying I'm using the wrong words because I don't have them, but enjoy is <laughs> like, I, I enjoy is the wrong word. Not that I didn't like it. I w- got into it and I wanted to figure it out. And I wanted to understand like why you made like certain choices and why you decided to focus on certain things. Why'd you decide <laughs> just to render it in black and pink? And I was just like, Claire. <laughs> Can't wait I to talk about this. Of, like, I need some kind of buzzer sound every time I smile really big because this is a podcast. People can't tell, but <laughs> I'm smiling a lot because this is delightful. To me. Thank you so much. Um, I'll say this. I'll say this about it. Um, if 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 horror romance, if whatever that means to you, if you're listening to this, you're like horror romance. What does that mean? Um, if you're interested in that idea, you 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 should read. You should go back and 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 back on on Zoop and read The Magic Necklace. 
um, because that is exactly what this is. And it's it's not just that, though. There are a lot of other moving parts to it. I'll I'll say that. Um, <laughs> smile buzzer, smile buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, it's just doing some very interesting things and like kind of subverting some things. Like there's definitely ways that I thought, oh, this is this. Okay, I, I'm, I'm into this. I've, se- I, I've maybe not seen this before, but something similar. And then I'm like, oh, that's not what this is at all. <laughs> so I, I really, and it made sense. It, it, some of, it made a little <laughs> bit more sense to me after reading it the second time and after going through the afters. I, I want to do that now. So you, you have a list okay. of names after okay. the cover. And mm-hmm. the cover's great, by the way. Thank um, you. you. You did the cover as well? Yeah. You you did everything in this, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the cover is like an angler fish mm-hmm. and says, you know, uh, the magic necklace, um, a love story. Yeah. Um, and so then in the after you list a, a couple of individuals. And I just kind of want to help, you know, have, since everyone's been listening to me ramble, have you talk <laughs> about some of the, like the influences here which I really appreciated this. Uh, so Jane Campion, I'll just yeah. list them real quick. Jane Campion, okay. d- director, filmmaker, uh, Jim Steinman, uh, composer, lyricist, songwriter. Uh, anyone familiar with Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, one and two, that's Jim Steinman. Um, he also, I believe, wrote or, or, or co-wrote uh, uh, Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yeah. I think uh, Holding Out for a Hero on the Footloose soundtrack. And one of my favorite songs, Air supplies, making love out of nothing at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which can all be found in the Bad Out of Hell musical. Um, uh, Pat Verducci mm-hmm. is a, a writing coach and a writer themselves. Yeah, she is, yeah. Okay. Uh, Susanna Moore, we'll, we'll talk about, it, you know, in terms of Jane Campion, Susanna Moore is a writer and um, wrote In the Cut, which Jane Campion adapted for uh, the film, which I, I think is... Is it Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo? Yes. Um, Haru Jackson is an Iranian-American filmmaker. Um, Alice Cooper, I think most mm-hmm. folks are familiar with, the, the singer. And also, it's February 4th when we're recording this. So, happy happy 75th birthday, Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, <laughs> Alice. Thank you and, for your uh, long service. <laughs> and that, and uh, I think it ends with, and that guy from Jamiroquai. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so talk, talk to me about some of these, these individuals and how, you know, how you felt they like impacted you or influenced you or like what little knots, whatever you want. I'm just kind of curious about all of it. Okay. Um, who should I start with? I guess I'll go for Jim Steinman because he is recently deceased. Um, I think he died last year, right? Yes. Yeah. I think both him and Meatloaf passed away. Yeah. Um, I just love his um just everything i just i love the the tone and the perspective and the scale and um the range of scale that he put into his work into his music um like the heartfelt opera of um i would do anything for love but i won't do that like you know, it, it it is on par with Disney's Beauty and the Beast for like romance and splendor and um like pain. Um, it's got everything. But then you, you also get lines like um I forget the exact line, but it 
I don't forget remember what song is from either. Um, I'm not very good at remembering titles, but it is it's another Meatloaf song, and it's he's like, what about this? It's defective. What about that? It's defective. And then you 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 know how Meatloaf can sing and how his voice can project and oh yeah, and he just blasts out. You can shove it up your ass, and that's so crude and bass and like low down but he makes yeah. everything of it and i really vibe with that um mixture of enormous feeling and like guttural expression right i, I really i just it feels like home <laughs> <laughs> by the way that song is uh life is a lemon and i want my money back right see what a great <laughs> like what a lyricist honestly like he's he's funny and he's he's poignant um like that you know Again, I don't recall the title, but um, the one that has like a um, an interlude where it's it's a baseball game on the radio while the teens are trying to screw in a car. Um, oh yeah, I mean that's Paradise, uh, right? Yes, by the Dashboard Lights, right? Yeah, yeah. And All right, like, here we go. We got a real pressure cooker here. The narrative Sorry. of the song is about how you shouldn't um, like throw your life into an endless romance when you're not old enough to understand what that means. But it, it it's so horny and fun and romantic anyway. Um, like my, my last comic, um, Take Me to the Place I Love, was mm-hmm. on a very similar subject. It just like, and, and then like the, the, um, the spoken word intro to, again, I forget the name of the song, but um, would you offer your throat to the wolf <laughs> with the red, red rose? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I fucking would. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. Come on. <laughs> I, when you started talking, I was I, I was thinking of that because um, and I didn't at first. I probably should have, but in in thinking of like like the magic necklace, and you started talking mm-hmm. about some of those songs, and yeah, yeah. like those spoke because they're they're just like the you know. He, there's also the spoken one before wasted youth, but in particular that one. You know, would you offer your throat to the wolf? with the red roses and like, yes, I bet you say that to all the boys. And then just delicious, <laughs> isn't it? And then it goes into that like carnival sounding. <clears throat> it's, it's just wonderful. Um, yeah. I, I aspire, I aspire to, um, com- combine that array of, uh, high and low together and like blast it right through the middle. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jim Steinman, I think, cause I was, uh, I am a, a, a fa- big fan of like Meatloaf, uh, but mm. Jim Steinman and and his work. And um, I it always struck me. And one of the things I liked is that these shouldn't be songs. They shouldn't work as well <laughs> as they do. Yeah. And be, and, and they're and they 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 just do so well. And not only is the music catchy at, at, at times, but even but the lyrics are. You know, the lyrics are tremendous to a lot of them. And you're like, what is it I'm singing? And you start to dig in. You're like, oh, this is not like, no one else is writing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, Well, the secret of Meatloaf really is that he's kayfabe. You know, like, he's not really a rock star. He and Jim Steinman just have this incredible, like, decades-long theater kid stage show. Right. About a rock star. So, it like, it's working on levels it's not just one guy being like motorcycles are cool and i have sex it's two guys being like but how do those guys really think and i just think that's fantastic yeah. literature right 
it does work on a lot of levels because there is that one level of, oh, this is cool. This sounds yeah, great. Yeah. And then Paradise sure. by the Dashboard Lights, we're doing this. But then you listen to a song um, uh, like um, Objects in the Rearview Mirror. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this is this is about loss and regret. Mm-hmm. And it's about so many, you know, this is about life. Like this isn't about, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, talk to me about Jane Campion and and I'm in conjunction with Susanna Moore and in the cut, because I, I see I feel like that's, you know, kind of somewhat of a, a, a you can draw a line from that to the magic necklace. I mean, I might yeah, be wrong, can. but 100 percent you can. Um, and I, I would, I guess, roll in Huey Jackson at the same time, because. Um, both uh, his movie, Amy in a Cage, um, is an adaptation of his comic book. Um, his graphic novel, Amy in a Cage. Um, and I watched that, I think, at a similar... I don't remember if it was at the similar time or if it was just like I watched both and then somehow in my mind they combined. Um, but like those two are like extremely direct influences um, on the the story and the aesthetic and the character design also, evidently. Um, they just together, along with Papaducci's movie, she made one movie, uh, it's it's really good. Um, they're all about men taking advantage of innocent girls who really deserve to be treated well. Like that. That's a very simplistic boiling down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also extremely true and accurate, and like vital. Um, because they all make it extremely clear that it doesn't matter how much you can say that some that that a girl should have known better or that um she should have been more careful or more wary it, it, like the if you can say that then you can say it because someone took advantage of her on purpose they just they they made it so vibrant and so um like they all just do a really exceptional job of counteracting deep, deep, deep narratives of victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and they transformed my own understanding of my own internalized victim blaming. And I don't mean that the way I thought of other people, I mean the way I thought of myself. And I don't mean myself as like a literal victim who has had certain things happen because I haven't been raped just like for the record i guess um but i i spent 33 or 4 years thinking of myself as the only person who could possibly prevent my own abuse and mm-hmm. that i needed to because people were going to come and try um like like i said the romance novels that i read as a child sometimes were threatening they created threatening impressions the world did not especially disagree with them i had experiences with boys and men that were extremely unpleasant and um that supported that same narrative like someone people are going to come and try and take advantage of you and punish you and blame you and everyone's going to agree with them and i felt like i was the only one who could possibly stop it and that made me quite frankly incredibly uptight um Mm -hmm. and i didn't enjoy it but i felt like i had to do it because that's what we teach people and these movies together undid it. They literally 
improved my life um, and my ability to consider what is actually reasonable to ask of myself. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful. So th this comic is kind of processing that realization that it doesn't matter, it wouldn't matter what I had ever done. What like if I'd have lived a much more careless life, it wouldn't matter because if someone had done something to me, it would still be their fault, not mine. Right. And yeah, so like it, there's a direct line between those movies and my realization and my need to process that through creativity. So it seemed only fair to like put them right in there and say, yeah, it was you. <laughs> mm -hmm. You did this for me. Thank you very much. When you write something, when you're taking all of that, these topics dealing with, you know, the, the effect of the romance novels on you in terms of, you know, seeing yourself as the only person to, you know, protect yourself because that's yeah. how you you kind of had that influence and that was reinforced by, you know, other people in your life. And I'm not saying that's necessarily, you know, specific to you. That's a societal you know, yeah. type of issue. When you write a character like, like Anne Rita mm -hmm. and try to, to process those things, um, are, are you, you kind of positioning Anne Rita as like, not, not a surrogate. That's like the, the wrong word. Again, I keep saying that, but like, are you, are you, you, you kind of dealing with that to, to like, how are you using Anne Rita I'll just ask it that way. How are you using Anne Rita then as a character in that story to kind of like process that? Um, as an example, <clears throat> I guess. Um, I was talking with my friend about the movie Elvis recently. Um, she was saying how um, Lerman kind of uh, framed him as like God's perfect idiot, um, <laughs> which I think is pretty apt. Um, I'm kind of using her like that. Um, like in my in the first in my first drafts, which aren't physical, I I draft in my mind, um, but it still counts. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> in my first through like like playthroughs, because um, I'm a very visual thinker, so I just like I watched the movie essentially a few mm -hmm. times in slightly different ways until it gets right. The first few times she was much sassier, like she was much more. Um, challenging um but i have characters who are sassier and who are more challenging like i'd done that before and it wasn't quite right because mm -hmm. being sassy and challenging is something that i do like that's something that i use because i i never felt safe to not um if you're challenging someone you're keeping them at their distance and and rita if she does that the story doesn't function. Um, she needs to be something that I have never dared to be um, amongst the general public because because I'm because I don't trust that no one will take advantage of me if I mm -hmm. if I act that naive if I am that um, ingenuous. Um, she's kind of a power fantasy essentially because like the whole point of the magic necklace is that she has the power to not 
defend herself. She doesn't have to defend herself. And I simply can't imagine experiencing that. Right. So yeah, it's um it's like, hey, crazy, imagine if. Yeah. I, I something you said just reminded me that um just a conversation my just a, like a, one of those like a run of the mill conversation my wife and mm-hmm. I had that reframed yeah. thinking about things about <clears throat> having to protect, you know, oneself. Yeah. And she wanted to go for a walk. She you know, we have two kids, 10 and 5, two girls, and um she wanted to go for a walk uh like you know, one day just to get out of the house. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know where to go. I don't know if I want to, because it's starting to get late and I don't want to go to this park or that park. And I'm like, well, just go, fine, go to whatever park you want to. And she goes, mm-hmm. no, I can't go to, you can go to whatever park and go for a walk. She's like, I can't. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, you're right. I'm, I, I sometimes don't think about that fear that you have of just going to yeah. a park and not being the person, you know, not being, always, always being worried about, what's behind you um and it's not only what if something happens it's that if something happens people will say why didn't you stop it by not going there in the first place it's this absolute expectation of outsmarting the villains that we we live with Mm -hmm. um and it's really boring It, it like it's not only that I don't want to get touched or hit or whatever, because I've been touched and I've been hit. Um, but I don't want to have to convince people that I didn't want to be. And we know all of us, someone's going to try. Someone's going to say that, that, like, well, you should have done something else. Mm-hmm. And like, <clears throat> honestly, I don't know if it's the right decision to not go to the park because it wouldn't be your fault. It wouldn't be your fault if you went and someone got you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't go, you don't get to go to the park. Like, I don't know if this is the only advice in the world, but like, we can't, like, when we talk about internalized misogyny, internalized ableism, internalized racism, I think it's really hard to actually appreciate what internalized means. I think there's like, an almost implicit like sense of purpose like because because the way that i think that we're taught to think about bigotry is that it's something that for the people who hold it it gets them ahead like white people get ahead of black people and people of other races by being racist and stay ahead by being racist and men get ahead of women, get ahead of everything by by being sexist and by by being oppressive. So, but when we talk about internalized misogyny, I think that it's very easy to sort of hear that we have kept some prejudice 
in order to get ourselves ahead somehow. Like we've kept the idea that we should be like pretty or thin or something because that will allow us to get ahead of people who aren't. But that's not what internalization really, or only at least, is. Like, it's just, sometimes it's just acknowledging, not even acknowledging, like, misogyny is real, right? Right. And sometimes internalizing that is just knowing that misogyny is real. Like, it's not, it's not keeping a special secret stock of, um, of misogyny that you can, like, blast out at other women when you want to get slightly ahead of them. It, it's things that we can't see. Like it, it, it's a an altered perspective that doesn't benefit us in any way, and that um, like sometimes I don't know if you can escape it except by embracing the possibility of danger. Like you can't gain civil rights without protesting for them. You should be able to, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes we just have to accept that we either experience the possibility of danger or accept the ever-continuing state of social misogyny. Does this make sense? No, it does. No, I, I mean, I think it does. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, I, I struggle with various and sundry things and trying to, you know, constantly check, you know, myself and my, the, the privilege I have. And my wife and I talk a lot in terms of conversations about, you know, misogyny, especially raising two girls and like the yeah. things that I just take for granted and, you know, trying to educate myself a lot to not fall into those same patterns in terms of how I was raised that things I don't think of as, oh, that's not misogynistic or that's not, you know, a prejudice or that's, and and to realize that some of those things are systemic and ingrained and to try and recognize them. But I mean, I think what you're saying makes sense though, in terms of if you don't open yourself up, if you're someone who is bearing the negative effects of whatever it might be, if it's misogyny, that if you don't open yourself up to some type of danger, then the status quo is, you know, maintained. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can't be, I, I can't like bang a gavel and solve it or like say, this is what anyone must do. But philosophically, mm -hmm. um, yeah, sometimes... Maybe we have to pretend that we're that we couldn't be in danger in order to I mean like I told this story on my TikTok recently, but when I was in university, my last year of university, um, I had a ground floor room. And one day, like this complete stranger climbed in the window. Like he was framed like in the window frame. Um, and he wanted to come through my room, which was my bedroom. My bed was right there, to find his friend who lived upstairs, who I didn't know either. Um, and it took me so long to convince him to get down outside of the house and come around. And I and I let him in because I was afraid he'd smash through my window if I didn't. Um, and and like since then, when like I 
I for the rest of that summer, I kept that window closed. That would be the internalization, right? Right. Um, and now I live somewhere else, and we have um, like slanted skylights because we live in an attic. Um, and uh, occasionally, the landlord will book maintenance on the other buildings right next to us that he owns, and like men will appear right next to the windows. Um, and I will go completely mental um, because I want to fight them all um, because that puts so much... Like, at the time, I was extremely diplomatic because the only thing to do was make sure he didn't get angry with me. But after he'd gone, just full of lasting tension and rage. Um, But I do keep my windows open still. Because I know that even though it's happened, I didn't like, I want to feel the breeze. Yeah. It's kind of unsolvable. Do you think, I mean, do you think it's, will forever be unsolvable? I mean that's a big question. I mean and maybe then not in like maybe maybe I'm, I mean maybe it's not unsolvable, but maybe it's unsolvable on a comic book podcast. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to like claim you know that I can do it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the one to solve it. Um, Claire, can we just talk for like the next three to four hours about all this stuff? Uh, like <laughs> like this get let's just get into it because I real I want to I I want to I want to. I want to get into it now, but that, that, that your comic book, that your influences into it can lead into all these, I don't know. I mean, you know, important discussions or things that are topical or things that need to be discussed and drug out into the light. I mean, you've been reading comic books for, you know, a while. Um, Yeah. Like probably about 32 years. Are there... Are there comic books that you look to that you think have changed your perspective? I mean, can comic books still do that for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, if they couldn't, I'd fuck them off, you know? Like, what's the point if it can't do anything? Um, I, I can't, like, bring any to mind because that's just... Not not one of my skills. If you ask me a question, I'll be able to answer it in like six hours, but immediately, mm-hmm. probably not. Um, I'm the same yeah, way. But, huh? I'm the same way. When someone <laughs> asks, like, well, what is your favorite this? Or what is something that yeah, did this? Impossible. And I'm like, oh, impossible. No, I, don't, I can't um, do that. I just, I got my, my sweetie for Christmas, um, the first volume of Oku. Um, which is a manga about um, it's a historical alternate reality, um, which I kind of I have a, like a light suspicion that maybe she's going to be like, oh no, actually this is how it really happened. You just don't know. But that that's neither here nor there. But it's about like the, uh, all of the men in Japan practically died of a virus in um, Edo period. I think. Um, So women took over the running of the country. It became matriarchal instead of patriarchal. And men are 
basically just for breeding service. Um, and the the comic is is mainly about the um, the uh, the halls of of hot boys that the empress, the emperor, she's still called the emperor because they're trying to pretend that everything is fine to the other countries um, that she like takes ownership of and what what it's like that a new guy comes in and it kind of follows him and he sees what like the social setup and so on and to start with i was like this is a little bit basic um i don't really know if it's going anywhere but as it went on and i was i was i was just being a bitch <laughs> it, it's <laughs> it, it is considered it does have a purpose and a point and um i'm quite interested to discover more of it like i can't point you to exactly any any um particular revelations that i've had but i remember that something did change my mind um one of my favorite mangas um duet of beautiful goddesses by yumi hanakoji um is extremely bonkers um and it's like it's a um a romantic soap opera drama kind of thing about these immense. I see. That's gonna sound. I was gonna say these immense purpose, but that just makes it sound like any given '90s import, and it's it's not like that. Um, it's about these two women who happen to look identical. They meet each other just by coincidence, and one of them is a very, uh, I guess, naive. She's very stupid, um, and she's married to a very rich man, and she wants out because he's weird and controlling. And the other one is very poor. And her parents are dead and her brother is um, a neat. Um, so they swap lives. And it mainly follows the poor girl as she tries to deal with this rich woman's crazy life. Because her husband is sexually obsessed with his mother and buys her these gigantic, massive dildos all the time. And she has to like put him off. And his brother spies on air quotes her because he thinks she's still the other one um through a hole in the wall because the other one used to masturbate all the time and he would watch um and they start falling like the new one that isn't the one who is masturbating they start falling in love even though she's supposed to be married to his older brother and she doesn't know that he was peeping on air quotes her um and the older brother is very controlling like he's creepy and insane but he's he's not creepy creepy he's just like unexplained um he's polite and um kind of meek but he is the absolute um master of the home um and then the 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 one who's run away from this situation um goes and lives with the poor girl's brother who um notices that she's not the same girl even though they look identical but he starts being attracted to her. So there's a lot of like not incest, but it, it the the taboo that the invocation of incest um like brings to the fore makes the way that sex is discussed and um like the way that people are considered sexually by each other in the story, um, it makes it really fresh and interesting. Like it it has its whole own perspective on um desire and being an object of desire and trying to understand what people want from you when they're attracted to you or when they want to have sex with you or when they want to 
like be married to you or so on and so on. It's really, really well considered. And the um like the zany aspect, and like it's not, it's not again, it's not 90s anime style zany, it's just um really weird things happen. Like it's not normal to peep through a bookcase hole at your brother's wife. Right. It's like I mean, maybe it is, but it shouldn't be. You know? Like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> maybe really, it is, really but it shouldn't book, be. But it's also really, really fun. Uh-huh. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Um and so I guess with, with all these different things, with uh, you know, and in terms of you said how long you've been reading, all these different things you've been reading, mm-hmm. how comic books have you know affected or haven't like influenced you. Um kind of to cycle back to the you know the I guess creator part of this cryptid creator corner. Um yeah. you you say you've been in you know comics critic since 2012. I'm curious though with all of that, how did you first get into being a comics critic? And then I mean eventually you helped I mean I think like start and build uh women write about the Eisner winning women write about comics. Um how did you first start to do that? Um well I suppose I mean it's hard to to retell because it seemed so simple at the time. Um okay I was a comics reader right from when I was reading it all. Um, as a child, I read Bunty, which is an English girls' comics magazine that is no longer around. Uh, R.I.P. Um, and shortly after I became a Bunty reader, I was a viewer of the X-Men animated series, um, which I completely lost my heart to. Um, and when I was a bit older, I got online <laughs> for the first time um, when I was like 10 or 11, I think. No, it, it must have been 11 or 12 because shamefully, one of the first things that I looked up was Harry Potter plot clues. And I didn't <laughs> read that until I was 11. Um, I love that that's... That's the that's like the, those those touchstones as to how we remember dates. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> they were like, "Scabbers is gonna become really important," and I was like, "That would never happen." Um, anyway, <clears throat> little did you know. <laughs> right. Um, so that took me directly into the great more of fandom. Right. Um. Basically, I spent my teens on LiveJournal. And through that um, easy community of interest, because it's much easier to find people who actually like the things that you like online than it is in real life, in my experience, Um, or at least who you know do in real life. Um, I got to hearing things about what was happening in the X-Men. And that was very strange to me because I had never considered the notion that the X-Men was still happening. Because to me, it was a cartoon that I watched when I was little. Um, 
we, I mean, you, you could get an X-Men comic in England, in Britain, um, but I didn't notice it. I didn't know it was there. I really didn't, I, I didn't connect the two concepts, um, comics and the X-Men. I just, okay. I didn't, it never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that Rogue and Gambit was still having new and exciting relationship problems, I was like, I've got to get some of that. I've got to know. Um, and I gradually found my way into a real life comic shop, um, which was a whole thing. Um, but then I got into comics communities and was able to discuss things that were happening in comics, um, have conversations and evaluations and um like basically for me the act of writing criticism was completely natural um like I didn't really consider it to be writing criticism I was just saying what I was thinking um the kinds of fandom spaces that I was always in um were very evaluatory they were very responsive um i i read a lot of fan fiction but i also read a great deal of what for some reason was called meta which is just literary analysis um outside of the academic uh system so it just seemed normal to me to do that kind of thinking and writing and to share it with people who were also doing that kind of thinking and writing. Um, so through that like teenhood and young adulthood of of onlineness, mm-hmm. um, I knew Megan, Megan Purdy, the founder of, of Women Write About Comics. And I knew that she was planning to make it, um, to found it. Um, and I was like, Do you need any help? And she was like, Yeah. Um anything you've got let's do it let's make this a real website so i was like yeah i'm going to commit because i was unemployed at the time um i I'd, I'd dropped out of university at the very last hurdle because um as i said i did not know i had adhd but i totally did and it made a lot of problems um so yeah then i was unemployed because i wasn't doing that great and also i my my parents live in a village so, um, and I, I can't drive. Um, so like the, there weren't a lot of jobs going for me, so I just didn't get any of them. Um, so I was like, well, I mean, maybe I'll just treat this like it's real and then maybe something will happen. So I went to the library, I got business books. Um, I read about how to run a website, how to run a business, how to network, how to, um, run a team and communicate effectively um, in a professional hierarchy and all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. we did it. We just, we, we made it happen. Um, and because Megan wanted to do it properly, she wanted to make sure it was a good website. She wanted to have editors. Um, so she asked a few of the people that she knew, do you want to be an editor? And we were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because we were already we were like editing each other's articles for the site um and i found that i really liked it not only getting actually useful and attentive feedback that could improve what i was saying because i like i didn't think of myself as a person who could write or was good at writing or really 
Like I just didn't think in those terms. I was just existing as a person. But I found that I could write things that I like to read back with very with with the input of an attentive editor. And that was nice. Like I liked it. And I I liked being able to do that for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um so I stayed with the site doing both of those things for how long? Six, eight years? I don't know. It was a busy time and I don't notice time very well anyway. So Yeah, and then you transitioned to to being an editor and like a, a freelance editor of other comics projects. And yes. I mean, now in terms of you have, uh, I was looking today, so you have a, you have a, you have a Patreon, you yeah. are a freelance editor. Um, yep. I was, I, 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 I'm not, on, I'm not on TikTok. I, I had to borrow my wife's uh, TikTok <laughs> to look at some of your TikTok videos, but I, <laughs> my I, I mean, to the algorithm. yeah, uh, she'll get a bunch of comic stuff and she'll be like, I think, I think this is your fault. Um, <laughs> She'll send them to me. That's our main method of communication is uh, she just sends me TikTok. So it's nice. Um, but um, yeah, some of them are pretty good. Uh, no, but I was going to say like, I, I, I mean, I've only been, I, I comic book idiot. It, it just turned, you know, two years. I've been a comic reader for when I was a kid and I took a big long break and then got mm-hmm. back into it. But, um, you know, trying to write about comics, I'm a terrible Critic. That's why I'm much more like interviewing people because I'm very good at. I think I, you know, as a lawyer, I'm. I can ask questions and yeah. kind of keep the conversation going. I try to do a nice job at that and research into what and read the comic and talk about it. But I'm. I'm. I. I. I don't know if it's just that I like stuff too much. I think I'm. Since I'm not an artist, I'm. I'm very um, insecure about being critical of art because I just don't. I feel like I don't have the the language or to, to talk about it. I can teach it. you. I know that's what I was, cause like the first, <laughs> I think the first TikTok video I clicked on said like how to talk about the art in a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait, I have other stuff to do today, but can, can I just, I'm going to cycle back and look at all these. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so it's just amazing. I think like that kind of that, that journey and how, you know, you've, you've made your way and some of the comics projects, you know, that you have edited. I mean, some of the stuff that I've read or backed on Kickstarter, your name has is, is like continually coming up and like some of the stuff I like to read. Um, I was lucky enough to interview uh, uh, Henry uh, Barajas and I, mm-hmm. you edited Helm Grey Castle and yeah. I believe you edited uh Tata Rambo as well, I think. I did, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of um the Tomb of the Red Horse and uh Tomb oh, of the yeah, Black yeah. Horse. Yeah, um <laughs> Ian Mondrick and um is it Benjamin Bilby is the yes. artist? Yes. Um you put me on the spot there. I was like, oh my god, I'm not gonna forget this, am I? <laughs> no, yes, that is completely right. I I do my best to try and, and remember. Sometimes I'm I'm like, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll do what I can. Can I look it up real fast? Um, but, <laughs> but yeah. And I, you know, now, I mean, is, is there one particular source in terms of what it is you do that you get more, I mean, enjoyment or fulfillment for, I mean, you know, um, it, no, <laughs> okay. um, I do all of the various things that I do because if I don't, then, um, it weighs me down. I need this balance. Um, you know, like a, a balanced diet is important for, for anyone. Um, 
the editing makes the most money i can tell you that mm-hmm. um but if i was only editing i would be restless um because i need at least some portion of my life to be fully autonomous um editing projects really puts me on other people's schedules um and i'm not religious about them apologies um but i do essentially have to do things when people want them done um because otherwise they won't use me mm-hmm. um or like they'll you know their project will be delayed and that will upset them and i don't want that to happen um if if i'm just obeying essentially other people's timelines i get very yucky um it just doesn't it doesn't feel like the whole of my life should be that way so i don't make it be um and if i i mean i can't imagine not writing criticism because as i said it, it it's just normal to me like the, it, it th- those are the thoughts that are in my mind i don't ever have to force it i don't ever have to be like well better write some criticism or else i'll somehow get in trouble i wouldn't like no one is <laughs> <laughs> um like, I, I have patrons but i haven't yeah. promised them a schedule so i don't have to 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 work to one right um it's it just like these are my needs <laughs> you know yeah like i i just i work this way so i make this way my work nice and um with your comics you know criticism in particular is there any uh, i was curious is there any like one piece that you ever got like you think you got the most pushback on or oh yeah <laughs> like is there anyone um, that comes to mind there are a lot of people in the world who really don't like it when someone doesn't like Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And unfortunately for them, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure sucks ass. Sorry. Um, I I wrote about like the first two or three um chunks or volumes or whatever you want to call it on um I've completely forgotten the name of the web. Comics Alliance. Okay. Um, I wasn't there for very long, but well, I guess I might have been because I I thought I'd only written like four things, but then I went to check for some reason, and there were quite a lot of them. Um, but anyway, a lot of comments. I think there were, and there definitely were. Like people still send me emails about that. It was like, I think it was like 2015. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's still it's still living somewhere on the internet for folks to find it and send you yeah. emails about. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. That who knew? Who knew JoJo's bizarre adventure would spark so much ire? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I knew that. Because that like that's why I did it at all. Because I as I said, I was an online teen. So I knew about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure from like 2000 probably right and i'd always heard that it's so funny and it's so good and it's so great and it's so wonderful and it's brilliant and like i can see the character designs 
are interesting and intriguing. I can see that the art has some ranging from some to plenty going for it. Um, like I understand that someone doing a funny pose is funny, but then I read it and it sucks. And I was like, I'm experiencing dissonance here because people people really promised that it was good. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I felt, I felt a need to uh, balance the scales a little because I'd never seen anyone say anything bad about it. Right. I genuinely expected it to really be impressive. It wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, I just. Yeah. I, um, well, I, I had mentioned, I, when I was looking at some of, you know, the comics criticism articles on your website, and I'll put links for everyone listening. I'll put links on in, in the show <laughs> notes. You can go and, and check out some of this stuff. But you don't send as much as Claire. you like, you, you, you turds. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't send Claire. Don't send Claire mean emails. All right. Don't don't do that. Read the stuff. But I mean, just because somebody is critical of something you like, you can still like it. Doesn't mean you're a terrible person. No, they I mean, you could be I a terrible person, them. but <laughs> um, so. The two two of the ones I've read, I, I, the first I think there was one about the nine panel grid and how I, I mean I'm I, I don't I don't have it in front of me so I don't want to misconstrue what you said but the the impression that I got like oh the nine panel grid it's boring um, or you you were bored by it and, and so you went through and you kind of talked about Watchmen Peter Cannon Thunderbolt um, Heroes in Crisis uh, with Tom Tom King um, mm -hmm. Mitch Jarrods. Um, I think Mitch Jarrett, you talked about um, uh, these savage shores, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, I think Fearscape as well, which is another yeah. another vault book. And I was kind of going through, and I like it's funny when you you see an article and you're like, oh wait, not, what is this? What is what is they what are what are they writing about? And then I started to read through, and I'm like, oh no, okay, oh, I see that. Oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> oh, okay, no, um, you know, especially how. I guess it's Kieran Gillen handles uh, the, the nine panel grid and Peter Cannon Thunder Thunderbolt and um, yeah, it was just interesting. And then I, I think I went to one of the film and TV ones and read what you had written about uh, the Batman, and I felt very similar and I felt very <laughs> I was very vindicated. I'm like, oh well, Claire feels the same way I did. Everybody, <laughs> I only like I I expected it to be a lot better than it was people had said oh no this one is good this one is interesting this one has something you know what you can't trust people um you really can't they said that venom was super gay and interesting and it wasn't they said that um joker said anything it didn't people yeah, I, I still haven't seen uh, <laughs> i still haven't seen i, I still haven't seen joker um, I saw the trailer for it and I went, oh, so they remade the King of Comedy. <laughs> and I was yeah, like, I, like, I just, I just rather go watch the King of Comedy. If I honestly, I would say do watch it because it's funny that it's so lame. Um, like I haven't seen the King of Comedy and at the time I watched Joker, I hadn't seen Taxi Driver. But okay. since I have seen Taxi Driver, and it is extremely funny, the things that they took to use thinking it would make it cool and deep, 
but actually made it completely meaningless and bizarre. Like, taxi driver, he drives a taxi, so there's a taxi depot. In Joker, he's a clown, so there is a clown depot. Is there really? Yes, there is. There <laughs> really is. Uh, that's stupid but it's it's funny so in that respect mm -hmm. it succeeded to a small degree right yeah i mean that's i mean that is funny in a way that you know <laughs> it is. is it um yeah i mean it's so fun like there's so many things that and movies like Taxi Driver, not that I saw Taxi Driver when I was a kid, but I was much younger than I am mm -hmm. now because I'm 43 now that I saw it when I saw Taxi Driver. It's funny as you get older and like reevaluate things, which I always oh, think yeah. is kind of yeah. oh, kind of good to do. And a lot of people don't, you know, that that old adage like, does this still hold up? And it's true. It's I fun. think it, it's fun to find out, like, because yeah. the thing doesn't change, but you change and you can right. find not only how like how you think about that thing now, but how you think now. Right. Yeah, I my. I, I have a like, cousin likes to talk about movies. He's a podcast. He talks about movies and does like deep dives into them. And that the the yeah. podcast is longer than the film. Um, but <laughs> well, like, drop the, drop the link. You, know, <laughs> you do the familial. My, uh, my brother, yeah, my 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 cousin Jack and my brother and I for the thirtieth anniversary of Batman eighty nine. We in we did like we went through and I hadn't watched Batman the Michael Keaton <clears> the eighty nine one in you know, 30 years and went back and watched it. And it was, it's funny, like the things I remembered about it and what I would have said before watching it, if someone was like, what's your opinion of Batman 89 and the things I would have said. Yeah. And then I watched it and it was totally different. Uh, I had the opposite <laughs> effect because it was okay. I had the opposite effect on Batman Returns because I remember as a, when that came out as a kid in 92, I didn't like it. And then oh. watching it again. Yeah for the 30th anniversary as like, you know, as an old, I was like, this is insane. Like it's, <laughs> this is great. Danny DeVito's chewing up every piece of scenery. He can get yeah. his webbed hands on. Um, everybody in the movie's horny for everybody else. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no wonder all of these things <laughs> <laughs> went over 12 year old me, but 43 yeah. year old me is like, yeah, I want to see more of whatever wild thing <laughs> this was, was, was going to be. It's just funny how that happens. That's nice. Well, Claire, I, I cannot, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I, I cannot <laughs> thank you enough for coming on to talk to me about all of these things. I mean, this has just been, I, I hope people enjoy it listening to it, but it has really been insightful and delightful for me to get a chance to, to chat with you. I have thoroughly, thoroughly in, enjoyed hearing you talk about the magic necklace and your influences. Um, we got to talk about Jim Steinman, which I always love. Um, so I really thank you for, for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and thank you for, for asking those excellent loyally questions. Um, cause I couldn't give good answers if I didn't have good questions. Well, I appreciate that. That's nice of you to say. Um, <laughs> so uh, for everyone listening, uh, you can, if you're listening to this, when it, uh, between St. Valentine's Day, February 14th, and uh, if it's 30 days, I'm guessing somewhere around mid-March, um, then you will be able to click on the link in the show notes to back 
the Magic Necklace on the Zoop campaign. Um, but there's also going to be links for Claire's website to go check that out. If you were listening to this as a comics creator and you need an editor, you need an editor. Um, <laughs> you can hire Claire. I'm very uh, helpful, I promise. Uh, yes, and there are plenty of folks, if you go and look at some of the comics that Claire has edited, that will, I'm sure, back up that statement. I've talked to a number of them for Comic Book Yeti, and uh, they always have very wonderful things to say about Claire's editing, and Claire has a Patreon and TikTok. But um, yeah, the Magic Necklace, and it is a uh, the a black pink horror romance that you need to read and then come and talk to me about it and we can we can get more into what it is you got out of it what it is i got out of it and um yeah so thank you very much claire and um if you like the podcast remember to rate review and all that stuff say nice things about social media and and um yeah thank you so much for listening and uh uh for comic book yeti i'm jimmy gasparro and i will see you next time bye everybody goodbye This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now